to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always knows where to find maximum value at a garage sale. You want to skip the big items, skip the old vacuum cleaners, even the couches. Who wants an old couch, gross? Go straight for the collectibles. You know, Pokemon cards are in. Baseball cards somehow are, like, valuable again or something. Trading (laughs) cards are popular for whatever reason. (laughs) People love trading and hoarding goods. You head straight for those, folks. Is that what you're looking for, Amanda? China. I I look for some nice Ah. china that's not chipped, especially if it comes in, like, little sets. I should have known, given your age, that you'd be into Antiques Roadshow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, given your advanced 90 plus years. My advanced age. (laughs) Will will Antiques Roadshow die when, let's say, the generation of 70 plus year olds currently is gone? Do you think that'll just fade? I mean, people still keep family heirlooms and antiques, right? So it won't go away. I don't think it'll go away ever. And, and like, yeah. um, the whole, like, um, newer generation is all about, like, found art and stuff like that now, too. So, like, I think they'll they'll be interested in, in these heirlooms as well. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah, I never did collectibles with the eye of reselling, and my mom gave away all my Pokemon cards at a garage sale. So. Oh, gosh. But, I, you know, but it, even at the time... I was totally fine with it. I mean, they had no oh, use nice. to. I'm not again. I'm not a. I don't have the collector mindset in terms of. I, I just. I did, it's, it's just investing, man. It's like don't turn your hobbies into finances. Like, what are we doing? I don't get that mindset at all. I don't understand. But whatever. Yeah. yeah a conversation for another time. Uh, if you have no clue why we're talking about garage sales and getting maximum <laughs> value, that is because we are discussing today a book called Uncommon Type. It is a book by Tom Hanks, the actor, short story collection. This is our part two book club episode. So today we'll be discussing and spoiling the entirety of that book or talking about the short stories and works in the back half. If you're unfamiliar with our show, well, frankly, this might not be the one to start at, but thanks for listening. We have Instagram and Facebook accounts. We are the Lightly Literary Podcast. On those social media feeds, you can find us just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, and it's all one word, so follow us there. We update our schedule with what we're reading, and we post the books we've chosen, and so best place is to keep updated and just to know what we've got going on and what we'll be discussing and reading. As I mentioned, we'll be spoiling the entirety of Uncommon common type at this point book club episodes are our analytical deep dive episodes so we will not be holding back we will um, of course try and summarize some of the stories to get folks caught up who maybe haven't read them but yeah we'll be discussing it all amanda did you like the second half more than the first half i did actually Okay. Yeah. Well, let's dive into, I think so too. I think I did also. We'll find out as we dig into the details. I, not enough to make a dent, I would say in my mindset, but enough to, (laughs) enough to note, I suppose. Um, Let's Mm -hmm. get into it again. It's Uncommon Type by Tom Hanks. Do you want to tell the stories we'll be discussing um, just straight up? Because we only picked four. We did only pick four. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Just list them. Yeah, just list them out. So for those who did do the readings, for short story collections, we don't cover everything. We just pick and choose our way around what interested us. So yeah, take it away. What are we covering? The first one is The Past is Important to Us, and then we'll uh, review Go See Costas. I think it's pronounced Costas. Yeah. Um, 
And then these are the meditations of my heart. And finally, Steve Wong is perfect. Excellent. And I will be honest, this read, I'm the one who's delayed the pod. We're recording late because of me. It's my fault. Put the blame on me, listeners. (laughs) I also just straight up did not read that screenplay he put in. I just didn't do it. I refused. It was very long. And granted, those plays and screenplays read really quickly. But I just, when you didn't pick it, I was like, I'm not reading it. It's the longest thing. It's nothing in here has engaged me really. And so I just did not read it. So that's that's me just being honest. <laughs> I I read it uh, with the the mindset of I wonder how he does write this screenplay because right. he's written screenplays yeah. before. So An I actor. wanted to see if it was better than the other things. I mean, it was it was it was okay. Okay. All right. Not worth it. But yeah, when you didn't choose it, I immediately knew I'm not going to bother. All right. Let's dive in. We're going to start with the short story. The past is important to us. Let me run through a quick summary of what this story was about. Bert Allenberry is a super ultra mega billionaire of an uncalculable sort. (laughs) <laughs> but don't worry, the story goes out of its way to make it clear that he busted his hump working 120-hour work weeks. You know, he's living the American dream. D- Tom Hanks would never do inherited wealth. He doesn't have any interest in that, you know. He wants an honest <laughs> American who worked hard for his billions. <laughs> also, exactly. 120 hours, like, what are we doing? I, I couldn't tell if that was, like, sarcasm or I was just like, come on, man. Like, what? <laughs> that's not even a fun yeah. hyperbole for people who say they work hard. Like, that. I think that's physically you would die. I don't... Have you ever heard of a 120-hour yeah. work week? Like, I don't... Usually the joke, or not even a joke, but the exaggeration is like 80, you know, double the normal amount. Have you ever heard right. of 120? Like... Nope. I That's... <laughs> yeah, anyway, so I, I... Yeah, but whatever. He earned it, is the point of the story. Uh, but he is bored with his very rich life, including his invisible plane, or his plane with glass floors. <laughs> it's in the future. Uh, and his wife. That was kind of hard to pick up on, but I do think they have kind of a a bored marriage. I know she jets off without him frequently, so it's kind of like I don't think they're connecting well anymore. So instead... Well, yeah, she's like 20-something and he's like 60-something. Oh, I didn't pick up on the age thing at all. I just noticed yeah. the activity. I just remember the activities. She's like, I'm going to Monaco for the weekend or Morocco or wherever. I think Monaco's the rich haven, so probably Monaco. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so to satisfy his curiosities and his kind of emotional state, he decides to time travel, which uh, is possible now. There's a service based in New York City who offers this. However, it's very limited. It can, because of the fake science that Hanks makes up, it can only take you back to one, like, day in the past. And so they have chosen the World's Fair of 1939. And, like, you could wander New York City on that day, but that's kind of what they tell you to go do. The, uh, this guy, Bert, becomes enraptured by a woman once at the fair. He, he goes there alone one time, just time travel and get away from things. He enjoys the past. Uh, but he gets enraptured by this woman who has dark hair and she's wearing a green dress. And on a later trip, because he decides to go back to see if he can find her, he works up the courage to talk to her and her niece, who she's with. Um, he realizes that she's single. She's also 27, which surprises him. So he's got a thing for 20-somethings, I guess. He's got a type. Of course. <laughs> it also goes out of its way, the story, to show or to emphasize that he's much younger than his years because of, you know, his money and he's paid to look young. So anyway, um, they enjoy a nice day. They stroll through the World's Fair. They also do some flirting and light hand-holding, a lot of long stares at each other. So he's pretty smitten. Um, I I will interject here and just say I I don't know why. (laughs) Do you think the story made a good case for their connection? Like, there's a little bit of the woman in the red dress. Yeah. yeah, it's just like a physical attraction at first, and he, he I, I just know that he made the comment that she was like, uh, built her body physically, Loves, she's built 
Yeah. Like, not the same as women. So not rail thin, like, what's attractive. Of course. Um, in in totally. the current times. At some yeah. point, I think he literally says her female caboose. If it's not caboose, it's something equally <laughs> unimaginative. It is it is almost literally like her female caboose or derriere, maybe he said, or I forget the language of it. Yeah. Important to remember that he's from the future, not the past, but whatever. <laughs> the narrator, I guess, is yeah. from no time. Um but yeah, so he he's definitely smitten by her. Um, and you're right, the the weight comment is explicit too. I think the quote is something about calories. It's sort of like this is before women were counting calories. Is the right. is the commentary? Yeah. But yeah, I don't the level of love and admiration he feels. Uh, who who knows? I don't I don't think the story makes a compelling case. That's fine. He takes one final trip to visit her, and he is told that it must be his last before he goes, just because of his molecules and atoms can't take it anymore. However. So in love, for whatever reason, he chooses to stay beyond his allotted time, and so the story ends with him at the fair, and it describes how his cells are quite literally disintegrating and falling apart, and so we can only presume he's basically melting into a puddle of just skin and flesh next to his new love and her niece. So, he's dead. (laughs) Yep, so dead. You want to start by talking (laughs) about that death scene? What'd you make of it? Yeah, so... For a death scene, like, I, I figured from, from like, the beginning, pretty much, I was like, so this dude is already pushing his time. He's definitely going to end up staying in this world beyond... I, I thought that maybe he would just, like, voluntarily stay forever. Yeah. It'd be kind of so, a romantic ending, because he'd have to give up his bill. He would just be a nobody. Like, a literal, right, I mean... Yeah. yeah, he would have no even identification. Like, he would be a literal nobody, have to make his own way. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be interesting, too, because um, of how that would affect history as well. So, right, right. And, and I remember in the story itself, it talked about how... Um, they took pains to make sure that there was no historical like effect for these time travelers to go in right and right. like just have fun at the fair or whatever so yeah they don't put I them in a scenario sense. where they could assassinate the president or you know they don't right well exactly i mean i guess if you're in new york city you could try any crazy thing you're if you're like geographically close and, but whatever the story doesn't care to think that hard but they they <laughs> they wave it away we're overthinking or i'm overthinking it so anyway sorry right um so so it makes sense, I guess, that um, instead of being able to live in this world, that they had to kill him at the end. Um, right, right. Because otherwise, if he would have lived, he could have gone to change anything. And <laughs> really. I think, too, I think it was a fact of, like, physiology. I mean, they make it clear right. before he goes that his body can't take anymore. This is right. as much as he's pushed his molecular construction to the limits. Did you find it evocatively yeah. written or something? It was, it was kind of no, committed I, to the gore, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't fully committed. It's like a lot of his writing, like it dared upon ex- it, but it didn't commit. <laughs> exactly. So I was expecting because everything is um, kind of told from his perspective. It's it's not you know first person narrative, but it is told from his perspective, and there are some words like painful and stuff like that used throughout the story. Um, so I was expecting when I first started reading the death scene and stuff, I was like, oh, okay, so he's going to like, you know, this is going to be a really painful thing. But the, but the way that it's described, it's just so like, meh, 
okay, so I get the idea yeah. that his body like falls apart, and it's like pretty horrific for this little girl witnessing it. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and to think it's some of the most intense writing in the collection, I, I would argue. At least we get the blood, right. and it does say like his his lungs are falling apart, or the molecules are splitting from each other, or something. So it's it has right. a kind of formal buttoned up version of pretty brutal violence or pretty brutal disintegration i mean i guess it's violence done to himself but yeah but it's not yeah it does it's not something that i can like feel for him i mean like this is a hot searing pain shot through his chest yeah as the molecules that made up his lungs began to separate i was like is that how you're really gonna describe that like there's right, right. there's so many other ways that you could describe that you could really make this like just the the usage of uh, imagery and stuff like that. You could get really playful. No, I don't want to say playful for something so horrendous, but you know, you could really be experimental with your language here. And he just was not. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, I think it. I don't know. At the, at the one time, I definitely made a note of it as I read because I thought, huh, okay, he actually described the kind of grotesque of it but then at the yeah. same time you just literally read the quotes it's just not that it's very milk toast as far as i mean again he describes certain aspects but it's just it's like a lot of the writing where it kind of pulls up a little short or something um let's yeah. talk about attraction a couple quotes for you let's talk about this this undone kind of deniable un um requited in a sense love he has for this woman uh on 255 it says on the second visit without cindy um he spotted a petite lovely woman in a green dress she was sitting on a bench by the lagoon of nations overseen by the massive sculptures of the four freedoms she showed a modest amount of leg over brown shoes with straps she carried a small purse and wore a hat with a white butt of a flower on it more of a cap really she was engaged in an animated conversation with a young girl dressed more for sunday school than for a day at the fair um, and then it says later, Bert couldn't take his eyes off of them, watching as they left the bench, heading arm in arm toward the Eastman Kodak building. He thought to follow them to see more of the fair through their eyes, but his watch showed nearly 5 p.m., meaning there was little more than two of his 22 hours remaining. Reluctantly, he returned to the taxi and yada yada. So that's there. That's the first sights he gets of them. Now, obviously, yeah. Hanks, I would say, has a very peculiar way of writing about attraction, which is that it's both reserved and then he wants it. It's like he, he wants to be be able to talk about anything but not for long and not in much detail so it's kind of like he's got that cool dad energy i don't even want to say cool that's a different connotation it's like an open parent who's like we will talk about sex but if you ask me too many questions i'll say like you know that let's leave it to the experts or i don't know or i don't want to talk about you know it's like so it's mm-hmm. you know he he mm-hmm. does invite these things we also mentioned already the way he kind of the narrator critiques her well, I don't even know if it's a critique, but he compliments her as sort of being of the era and her her thickness. I don't know what other word to use. Her size yeah. is like a very attractive quality. But their actual connection, the emotions of it, um, it just doesn't really exist. They have a brief chat, obviously, and they, they do seem to get along. I, I just thought to make this case for this billionaire literally committing suicide almost knowingly too i mean it's 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 it heavily implied that he will not do well if he stays uh, that his body will suffer right. for in order for that to be the conclusion i either need to see his life be way more dissatisfying in the present or for this connection to be way more inspiring in the past 
uh, frankly, we get neither. I thought we got neither. So it was just kind of a strange, intense sort of ending for what I thought was like a modest kind of meet cute just getting to know each other attraction story i don't know am i missing some quotes or there's some bits that that grabbed you no like i also was surprised that he was willing to just like kind of give everything up Mm -hmm. there especially knowing i i mean he was like pretty dismissive of of the physical aspect as far as um not being able to stay uh but Right, right the yeah, the development of them. I know that like he sees her a lot. It's kind of stalkerish, almost in a way. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah. <laughs> he sees her a lot, but he only interacts with her like what three times total. The first time is just to give her the tickets. The second time is like they uh, go out somewhere, and then the third time is like the final time when he spends the rest of his life with her. His very short life there. Yeah, um, yeah. But even, like, the development of their relationship, it's like, I even hesitate to use the word relationship, the development of this acquaintanceship, <laughs> um, it was so quickly done, and it's like, we don't, we're not privy to their conversations. We don't know how deep they get with their conversations. I can't imagine it would have been that deep anyway. Considering it's all summarized. Yeah. yeah. There, and there's a child there too, right? Like the, the child is going to require a lot of time and effort as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Ice you cream. are around children, yeah, <laughs> like they will insert themselves into your conversation. Um, and she does always. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she does. Not in a rude way, but th- she does. Yeah. She comments on that she's unmarried. You know, she's an old maid at twenty-seven, etc. Exactly. And but the but the development of their relationship of the two adults' relationship is just. I mean, it's like non-existent. I I was just like, I don't understand. I I know that like there are some descriptions of her also kind of like giving him like the look and like being really interested in him and stuff, but not enough to like die for a person you know <laughs> like i don't know and i just, just i thought it was a story supposedly of marital discontent with you know his current life his current the story also goes out of his way to characterize him as an actual genius not like he faked his way that he's an actual bona fide you know he like again he kind of earned it deserved it but i right. just like then show me more discontent with his life it's very the references to the present day are so casual it's it's that one scene on the plane to kind of set up everything the whole weight of it i don't know and then yeah to have the romance itself be so weak just didn't feel uh, it just didn't feel justified in the end it was kind of a strange ending talk us through Gosi Costas the second story yeah okay so Asan um, a Bulgarian on his way to America on a ship from Athens is pursuing the American dream after escaping the horrors of his home country which has been taken over by communist supporters who are out to eradicate those who oppose them Asan works on the ship taking him to America, but he hides his friend Ibrahim on the ship to get him to Chicago via Philadelphia. Um, Asan disembarks in New York with the chief of the ship who helped both him and Ibrahim um, get on the ship in the first place. And um, he treats him to a barber visit and to a Greek connection, Dimitri. Dimitri offers some help. He gives um, Asan some information about a place to learn English and a man, Costas, who would offer Asan a job. 
except Costas doesn't and is verbally abusive to Asan until the very end when Asan is wearing his nice suit and buys a coffee from Costas. Yeah. Then yeah. all of a sudden Costas is like, all right, well, his go captain ahead and get to work. tried to help him with the shave. You know, he tried to set him up and <laughs> yeah. show you, hey, young man, it's all about presentation. You know, it's not about not right. about what you got. It's how you how you put on. And uh, it was apparently not enough until the end. Exactly. When he was already, he was getting scruffy again, too, right. at the end. Yeah, totally. It was falling away. I mean, that many nights in Central Park, it's takes a toll. It takes a big toll. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you think that the relationship between him and... I mean, I guess Ibrahim isn't in the story very much at all, obviously. He just is kind of... He, he's literally stowed away, like, hidden under the, you know, bowels in the bowels of the ship. But yeah. I thought it was a nice... I don't know little bit of a go away scene that they he cleans him up in the bushes and stuff it was it's like a lot of this stuff it's just kind of quaint and modestly interesting or something i don't know i'm yeah. trying not to be too backhanded but it was kind of like okay i get you know that's like a friendly it has a certain friendliness to it i think as a story construction or whatever commentary this is offering maybe it's a bit more muddled about immigration and kind of the american dream but yeah i don't know did you make anything out of that relationship or anything stand out to you yeah, it was like the solidarity that um, he had with his friend that he was looking for with Dimitri and with Costas as well. It's that that shared experience and the shared like, hey, we have kind of similar backgrounds and, and let me help you out as much as I can, even if it puts me at risk, where the relationship with Costas is like the complete opposite and is not at all what Asan was expecting from that so i think that it sets up a nice kind of contrast between those two relationships Mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely true there was the there was a moment i wanted to discuss in the story 364 ish they dump hassan's entire life's flashback they i say tom hanks the the writer (laughs) there's not some weird (laughs) consortium of writers anyway hanks kind of dumps all of his story into a flashback of a couple of pages yeah to me it's so fascinating. Some of the best writing in the whole book, I think, is in those pages. But then again, it relies on the same thing we saw in Evelyn Hugo, where you're writing a narrative in a pretty bland voice, in, in a way, and then all of a sudden you take this almost... I'm not going to say it's stream of consciousness. That term is, I think, overused maybe at this point. But it's definitely more, it has more of a clip. It's very repetitive on purpose. It's it's clearly, you know, suppressed trauma, right? It's like all of this, it's like such plainly stated intense violence and trauma against him. He murdered somebody at some point to escape and all this stuff. But it reminds me of Hugo where you just think, it's. I'm glad you're showing this. It's daring and effective, I do think. But also then the rest of the story still exists. So it's like, right. what am I left to, how should I feel about the rest of this now? It's, it's odd. It doesn't quite flow. And I think, again, I admired some of the sections in there. I could pull some quotes if you want. Did you notice that section? Sounds like you did. Of course I did, yeah. Yeah, I I liked the background story of Asan. I thought that the this is like a great characterization. It's something that I enjoyed because I was like, wow, we really get to see a lot more of like why Asan is like so set on getting into America and why he was so willing to help Ibrahim, even though it would have risked his own. Um, chances of of making it and stuff like so and 
the background information is really interesting, but the way that he presents it, it's like a list of here are all the things that he witnessed and here are all the things that he's done and that he had to experience in his life beforehand. And then it's like, and now we're going to plop him back in New York and, mm-hmm. and that's it. It's just strange like, to see such intense. I also should mention, I'm not going to put a warning on this episode, but I will say this part's a bit sensitive, I guess. There's a whole paragraph about how he got married, fell in love, then his wife died in childbirth, then their son died as a baby, like a month after he was born. Like, it's just listing the most intense, lifelong traumas a person could ever, you know, tally up and endure. And yeah. of course, it just dumps it. But it, so then the question for me became okay, what else, what in the rest of the story is about a deeply traumatized person? Or what in the rest of this is about a deeply, I don't know, like, person in suppressing themselves or a repressed person or and the rest of it his character is just kind of vacantly bouncing around there's not there's no scene in the park where he really like stares after a child and like recalls his son there's no scene where he really right. struggles with a maybe he sees a woman who looks like i like the, i'm not doing the most creative this is not good creative writing but i'm just these are just the ways it could maybe build his character out in that lens instead it feels like a what the hell this is this person's life like what is the we weren't privy to any of this right. um and, you know, uh, maybe that's the point. I, I'm never, I don't ever want to turn away from the most obvious interpretation, which is like, well, yeah, maybe that's the point is you don't pick up on the rest. But then it just felt so jolting in the narrative and jarring to be like, wait, what? What is this two pages of just brutal kind of free form, extremely qu- quick moving exposition? It was just such a strange aside. So intense. Yeah. It, it really was. And even when you look at the structure, I mean, these are like giant paragraphs of just information about Assange's history. And it's like, compared to the other paragraphs, they're generally smaller than that, too. So even it's just like exposition dump there. And, and then mm-hmm. it's, there's no follow through with it, except to like, I guess, make us, the readers, like feel more angry at Costas for turning him away? I don't I don't know. Well, it's also there's this there's what could have been an interjection of the typing and how his daughter's trying to like learn this new skill and you know, he's sitting there totally without prospects and totally helpless adrift. And so there's this kind of contrast between them, but the story doesn't play that up at all. It does feel more random. It's not like yeah. death of a salesman if you remember the scene when the old salesman out of touch, out of time is trying to talk to his boss whose kid is using the voice recorder and he keeps getting cut off by the kid cuz he's like so fat. It's such an uh, that metaphorically I think symbolically is so much clearer to read because it's like you have a person clearly out of time being interrupted so constantly by something that's like modern you know mm-hmm. I didn't know how to I was trying to read this in a similar way but I was like these interjections don't feel it's not interrupting it's not like a put it's not putting anyone off it's just kind of like the narrator passively observes that it's happening and then I don't know it's it just made for a very strange scene that I don't think has a clear not that a reading needs to be clear, but an even an interesting reading. I couldn't even pull an interesting reading out of it. I was just like, I guess this is kind of an irritant, you know, a modest irritant. <laughs> but yeah. What did you think of the Costas ending then? You said you were confused by it? Yeah, I was just... So if... So the ending was confusing to me because it seemed to indicate that it's uh, for Costas, it's about... Um, the idea that that 
that Asan looks like he's uh, that he doesn't look the part of a worker there or something, right? But then at the end, when he's already like when he's sick, Asan is sick at this point. He's like got a dry cough, right. he's sneezing, he's um, he's got a scruffy beard, not not a full beard, but you know he's grown scruff. His um, he's got on his cleaned suit that he was wearing the first time that he met Costas, right? Didn't right, he wear right. this? But it was like wrinkled and stuff. Yeah, it must have been a little unkempt. Yeah, but it's the same suit. And and at that point, his hair and his beard were freshly trimmed. So, it's, you know, anyway, so th- he sits down at the end and has a coffee and is like dejected and like just staring at his cup of coffee and is like depressed, right? Right. And then Costas is like berating him and then all of a sudden he's like, okay, well, you know, take off your fancy jacket and go back there and work. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, but why why now? Like, is it just because it's the third time he was in there? I think to me it was a total attitude because he doesn't ask. That's the, I mean, that's the only difference. The clothing, like you said, we could examine some of the presentation, but it was the attitude change to me because he doesn't ask. He's just like, yeah, just enjoying my coffee. Like, don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not even looking for a job now. And so I think it's I don't know if that's a commentary on immigration. I'd like for you to unpack it then, because it's just like, okay, well, what is the what's the meaning of that compared to, let's say, Ibrahim's uh, life, or uh, I don't know, like what other contrast do we have to play it against in the story? But to me, it was kind of like the attitude of you have to pretend like you don't need it, and that's when you'll get it, or you kind of have to be above it. You can't be desperate, I guess. Is is maybe one reading of it? I don't know. Yeah, it's so it it was very weird to me because the other. The other immigrant um, that he kind of knows is Dimitri and the girl who is typing, right? Yeah, the right? typist. Um, and they are, I mean, like a little bit dismissive. They don't ask him where he's sleeping or anything like that, but they offer him other ways of helping, and they do, you know, give him um, clothes, extra clothes and everything else, and information about where he can find a job and, and that stuff. So they're still helping. So... Uh, I don't, I don't know. It's like Ibrahim, he was so willing to help this guy. And then Dimitri is willing to help in his way. But then Costas is only willing to help as long as he's not being asked to help. I just, I don't Mm -hmm. know. I was very confused about if this is an immigration story, what, what is the message here? I was not sure. Yeah, yeah, I think, I do think the relationships between basically every character is just too muddled to make it certain, because the other comment I was going to bring up briefly before we can move on was that his chief, who kind of eyes him, Hassan, he kind of eyes him and is like, I see what you're doing, but I'm okay with it. You know, he he pays for a shave, gives him some money, and is like, hey, good luck, man. He He yeah. leaves him with the comment of, like, if you're, or I don't know how you phrase it, but it's basically like, someone as intelligent as you you'll be fine. Okay, where did he ever display a cunning or intelligence? <laughs> like, he helped yeah. his friend hide, but, I mean, that's not the most brilliant scheme ever invented. <laughs> um, he he did get on the ship with the Johnny Walker, which, yeah, it's like, okay, you know, find someone's personality and, and try and be, make that malleable to 
we're trying to manipulate them basically like okay i but right. there's just no profound cleverness or intelligence to it it's it's fine and it is i, I don't know it just did it also felt like an ending where it was kind of like oh okay that i guess that's his perception and another moment where i just thought i think something in this was not established as i'd like it to have been right yeah well, yeah, shall no we idea. meditate upon our hearts then, Amanda? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Third story we'll discuss, I'll do a brief summary of it, is these are the meditations of my heart. So uh, here's a little peek behind the process for you, Amanda. I didn't even like this story that much, but would you agree <laughs> that it's the one that is most explicitly about a typewriter in the whole collection? Yeah. That's yeah. why I chose it. I felt like we had to because... There are some uses of typewriters in these stories that, frankly, by the end felt absolutely contrived, where I was just like, man, you should have let that idea go. Like, it's really unnecessary to keep inserting these in. It's not, none of them are interesting, none are that helpful. It's such a weird thematic wrapping that I was, or I don't even know if that's even going too far. It's not really thematic. <laughs> it's barely, a, yeah. it's not even really a motif, frankly. Like, I don't know. So, but anyway, given that was his whole idea-ish... This felt like we had to do it then, <clears throat> right? Like, we have to talk mm-hmm. about this story, because it's actually about a typewriter. Yeah. I don't know if you agree, but that's why I chose yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That's good for me. All right, let's dive in. Uh, an unnamed uh, woman narrator, she is unnamed, right? Did I miss it? Uh, I don't. I don't remember her name. Yeah, uh, never so really I, comes I up. I don't think that she had one. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, but she's recently broken up with. It's um, kind of hinted at a long-term boyfriend. She finds herself an intriguing typewriter uh, with an earnest label, and it says on it, "These are the meditations of my heart." Uh, she's also at a garage sale, so there you go. Reference from earlier. She is trying to offload things in this moment. She's trying to kind of dump old stuff. The quirkiness and the permanence of this typewriter speaks to her, though, so she decides to buy it for. Five Later, she takes it to a local repair shop, which is right around the corner conveniently, to see if it can be fixed up a bit since its letters are, like, sticking. It's not typing perfectly. She can't really get it to... It's not very reliable. She can't get it to type reliably. At first, the owner of the repair shop comes off as kind of a curmudgeon, um, which I thought was actually kind of a fun intro to him. Did you like that? I Mm kind of liked it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a fun character. Uh, An old craftsman. Um, He later opens up, though, and is more honest with her and reveals that the typewriter that she has is just like a toy. It's really trash, and that's why he doesn't want to fix it. It doesn't have the mechanical engineering genius of the better machines. Like, he really admires these machines, and so he thinks hers is just like a joke. So they chat about typewriters for a little bit, why they matter, and after she talks to him about her life, kind of where she's at, he agrees to sell her a very high-end typewriter for $50, which is apparently $150... what decrease or off? I don't know what the what's the economic term for that. He gives yeah. her a great deal. Sale. <laughs> yeah. Puts on deep, deep sale. And so he's, you know, clearly doing her a huge favor. She does put it to work at home and also adds a nice touch about being the meditations of her heart. I think she also makes a grocery list. Is that right? Makes she something. does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't quite remember what she used it for at the end, but it's, you know, it, she sets it up in her apartment and is clearly ready to type. So Tom Hanks is in the story, right? Is he not the old curmudgeon? Is that I mean? Oh, he, I definitely envisioned him as the the typewriter guy yeah, for sure. Yeah. Here's the thing: is that this man dispels in a very short time in the story 
dispels a lot of kind of admiration and very clear-cut, almost philosophical pondering about why typewriters are cool or important. Come on, that it feels like. I guess here's my question, right? And we're doing it. This is a, obviously a, a mental exercise. We can't know this. How many of the things that that guy said would Tom Hanks do you think disagree with? Because he's a typewriter collector. He has like 150 typewriters. Like. I feel like he literally, Tom Hanks just kind of put himself in, or that's about as close as we're going to get, because the guy is such a fan, he's so admiring, he thinks they're engineering marvels, he talks about the Swiss, and they're Swiss geniuses, and all this stuff, and it's just kind of like, is this Hanks just riffing? He's just having a good time talking about typewriters, finally? Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure, yeah, that's, it's definitely him, his voice, everything, like, yeah, I was just like, oh, okay, he's... He's writing a story about himself. I got you. Yeah, here's a, here's a great one. This feels very, to me now, I have an adjective Hanksian in mind for his writing. Here we go on 232. This is from, of course, the old curmudgeon. America was on the move, he said. Work was being done in crowded offices, small apartments on trains. Remington had sold typewriters for years and years. Someone said, let's make a smaller, quieter machine, bring down the racket. And they did. Did they use plastic parts? No, they re-engineered the tension, the force of the keystroke. They made a typewriter so quiet it could be sold as noiseless. Here, type. And then she does, and she's impressed by it. Well, what a what a defense of America! Ah, we used to ah, we used to make stuff. Ah, we used to do it used to be honest labor, and people would be grinding, making machines. It was metal. It's just kind of like, fuck, man. This is like such a blatant insertion of your ideas about America. I guess it's just well, yeah. yeah. A lot of his stories, the main characters are all about the nostalgia, right? Like the Christmas mm-hmm. story. That's a very nostalgic kind of. I mean, yeah. It, it also mentions war, but the the life that the main character Virgil leads is is very much the epitome of the American ideal in the um, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, yeah. all that, right? Yeah. And then. Even the story that we did earlier of um, the uh, pat the pat what what was it the past is important to us yeah the time travel one that was a bit yeah, he was Bert, also clearly nostalgic about that time exactly. he like he liked the smell he like even though there was no air conditioning he didn't care he's like ah it's kind of I like the must of it you know anyway yeah and even uh, the previous one with Hassan like the American dream there and the idea that all these these immigrants that Asan um, meets up with, they are all successful in their own ways, and mm-hmm. so it's like the yeah. American dream still lives on, even for, for people who were not raised in America. So it's it's very much an idealized, I think, view of a simpler America that Tom Hanks, I think, really likes. Yeah, there's a sort of earnest, honest vision of it that is... Uh, what's the generous word to use? Simple, <laughs> the harsh word, naive, maybe the harshest word, like almost borderline insultingly moronic or something. I don't know. It's just kind of like, I, I guess just seeing authors inserting characters like this with such blatant philosophy stated so rapidly. I don't know. Does the story do anything to twist that for you or complicate it? I just had to bring this story up. Well, one, because the typewriter, it's like actually about a typewriter, right. about how people value. I mean, come on. The, f- the philosophy is so obvious. It's about permanence. It's about craftsmanship. It's about making things that last. It's, it's just like I could be so bored listing all the obvious things that you'd admire. It's like so, it's so obvious. Like it's not even, there's yeah. no interest here. There's no like, that's the, that's 
that's the log line, and that it doesn't go deeper than that, right? It's she ends the story it by doesn't. kind of admiring the thing and, and using it a bit. It seems like she's now ready to move on, maybe invest in herself more, whatever the modern terminology for that would be. So I just don't know where the interest should come in in the story. Like it's it's like so many of these stories. I get the pitch. But where's the interesting part? <laughs> like, where's the... Right. Not, and I don't mean twist like plot twist. I hope our, our listeners by now know that's definitely not what I mean. I mean something unique, something stylistically intriguing, something daring, something strange. So, like, just where's anything? It's just kind of... It just is what it is. It's, like, all in front of you, I suppose. Yeah, there, there's there's not much to, to analyze. I mean, we're doing a good... Good try, good college try here, but like, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did you? Yeah. Did any part of the story jump out to you, or did it intrigue you I in was any way? Just, yeah, with the main character, with the female main character, when she like starts to get hysterical, um, when she starts like yelling about like how she wants like to type so that her kids have something of her, and da 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 da. And then it leads to the idea of permanence, right? The the need for permanence. I was just like, this lead up to the emotion. I was like, the the emotion. This is meant to be very emotional for her. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not getting it. Like, did you did you feel her emotions as she's getting hysterical like that? Like, was there any the way that Tom Hanks writes the emotions for these characters? It just really falls flat for me. Um, yeah, almost every time. It's a huge and, hurdle in a short know. story, too. I mean, I find that yeah. short stories are very rarely emotional for me anyway. Um, there are a couple I can think of offhand. I think um, Ken Liu, last name L-I-U, writes pretty strong short stories that are that do tear out, that kind of poke at those emotions and can really he can open you up in a pretty short amount of time. And there's other people like Karen Russell or, I mean, George Saunders to me is like the master of the short story, at least for people who are alive now and, and writing and stuff. Anyway, Mm -hmm. all the digressions to say like I don't even really go to short stories for that frankly I think you you get that out of the novel like you feel the journey you feel the ebbs and flows like the novel affords so much more in that regard so to me the short story is about the writing style and really odd stuff like I just want to see strange things presented quickly really daring things it, you know it's like the poetry of, of fiction that isn't poetry right <laughs> or something I don't know if that's a I don't know if that analogy is really sloppy but that's essentially what I'm looking for so it's like it's not really but yeah no I agree with you completely like I wasn't emotionally invested in her because she's not interesting and is barely a character like we all we know is right. she just broke up with someone which you know yeah. it, fair enough I don't I don't need a short story to delve into that. I don't need the psychology of it. I don't need the relationship. I don't need the connections and exploring those. But then, like, do something more interesting in the repair shop than drop in of of you. (laughs) Don't drop yourself in the repair shop and just spout some stuff about America and permanence, the most simplistic analysis of, like, why why old things are cool, and then just be like, that's the story, basically. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just, there's no dynamic there's no dynamism to it for, for me I, you know maybe i'm not taking the yeah. right thing away but yeah i felt like we had to pull this one any other thoughts on this one nope those are the meditations amanda of my heart and my mind i combined <laughs> i i fused them together i brought them forth to, <laughs> as one unit and those are the meditations of my heart and mind the final story is steve Ong is perfect so this is a bowling story 
Uh, yeah. The whole gang goes to, yeah. How rare is that? American you said that like it's a genre. <laughs> <laughs> I like when I read that, you typed that in the outline, and I read it and just mm-hmm. kind of paused and was like, is is that a type of story? Like, is that is that a genre? Anyway. It is now. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Uh, it's Americana, a bit of Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole gang goes to the bowling alley to celebrate M Dash's anniversary of becoming an American citizen. There, Steve bowls a perfect game. Apparently, he was on the bowling team in high school, though he quit after it became a lettered sport. Um, he goes on to bowl more perfect games, so many more, in fact, that he's given the opportunity to bowl with the professionals and offered a hundred thousand dollars. If he can bowl another perfect game live on TV. Um, he doesn't want to, but Anna, of course, and his friends encourage him to do it. He succeeds, but he has zero fun, which is the only reason he bowls, and silently promises himself to never bowl again. Except he does when the narrator forces him to, in the end, after a few months hiatus, for fun. Yeah. So that's the story. No fun. Um, no fun at all. Not in America. No not in America, baby. No fun. Just cash. <laughs> if you're making money, you're not having fun. That's right. Or, well, yeah, or it's you have to choose. <laughs> yeah. No middle ground, damn it. Yeah, even like gambling, I feel like, is not fun. Well, I don't find it fun, so. Anyway. Yeah, I think some people do it, but it is it is a hobby where now granted this is what happens when your hobby is high stakes and has real life implications but i almost get the sense that it's a hobby that people like to complain about more than participate in it's like it's more about the annoyance and the complaining and like than it is about the actual the act i guess is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. it's like you know it'd be like what if we spent more time like we spend more time enjoying or talking or analyzing books or physically reading them than like complaining about how annoying books are to read. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like what if what if yeah. our, what if the majority of our hobby time was spent critiquing not critiquing because that's not the right word. Our critiquing is artistic, um, but like complaining and like trying to yeah. Compl- anyway, it's a strange thing. I find it very odd. I don't understand it literally at all. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I chose this particular story because I was like, this one, I think had the most stylistic voice out of all of the stories and okay. it's the very I, last story. I, in I the think collection. I agree. And it it's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> Should we start with my quote or yours? <laughs> I think, I think either one is fine. <laughs> yeah. Cause I do agree with you. It's, it's where his aw shucksisms come to the most, come to bear the strongest. It's this recurring narrator. He has the dude from the, the dating story with Anna. Then they come back for the plus four story. Then they come back for this one. Right. And is there another with right. these same cast? Nope. That's, that's it. It's just those three. So, yeah, I, I do think this, well, I don't know. I, I still think the father-son leg gets cut open surfing story might be his actual best, most complete story. But this one's mm-hmm. close, though, too. I mean, it has it has some pretty clear things it's doing, uh, to put it simple, simply, simplistically even. Um, what, do, what do you want to talk about first? So, I thought that... Um I would just quickly mention that there's like actual descriptive language okay. in okay. this story. Like 
I was like, oh my gosh, finally! <laughs> when I saw it, yeah, I was it's like, the first time well, I've I ever clapped, I think, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I have to edit that out if it's too loud. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> Um, so in the last two paragraphs on page 398, so almost the very last couple of pages there of the book is when we finally, finally get some descriptive language and, um, it, and the, the language itself also connects to the story, Alan Bean plus four, which is another story that they're all in. So I was like, oh, okay. So he's trying that out a little bit. That's good. So I was like, I mean, it, it was maybe just me being like really hungry for some descriptive language, but like. I was just ecstatic that I could find some. Um, so here's here's what I found. Um, As he held his ball before his heart in preparation for his wind-up, something more encompassing than silence fell on Crown Lanes, a void of sound, like the room had been vacuum-pumped of atmosphere, robbing sound waves of their purchase. Anna's fingers were digging into M dashes and my arms, the words baby forming mutely on her lips. The exact moment of the beginning of Steve's twelfth and final roll was imperceptible, like the slow lift off of a rocket to the moon, so heavy a thing that nothing moves despite the ignition of boosters and all the flames and fury. The nanosecond Chinese lightning hit the hardwood, a roar exploded so loud, you'd have thought every member of Alley Nation was on the cusp of simultaneous orgasm with the love of his or her life. A saber jet engine is not as loud as the roof-busting glare that grew and grew as that brown and yellow orb spun along its arc. Just inches from the impact of ball on pin, Crown Lanes was engulfed in a wall of sound. Mm-hmm. Like, that's... I was like, after I read those two paragraphs, I was like, there you go, Tom Hanks. That's nice. As I just wish you had done that more with, like, you know, every other story that you wrote. And do you, do you think some of the insertions in there, like the... Uh, on the ga- you know the edge of a collective orgasm whatever the expression was do you th- yeah. do you enjoy it all i agree that it's clearly a sign of trying like there's absolutely no question especially compared to some of the think of the world's fair sections i didn't read many of these quotes if any that stuff was so mm-hmm. summary it was just kind of like yep. i mean he says what the attractions were he certainly names a lot of stuff it's got yep. it's got a bit of research behind it but i don't feel like i'm there it's i mean god compare that to the writing kind of the almost indulgent writing in the what is the devil in the white city i mean that's like yeah that thing is thick mm-hmm. with atmosphere <laughs> that thing is like right that book is and that's trying a non-fiction hard. work <laughs> yeah that, yeah that book is pushing it hard and so just to compare those is like gee is not even in the same category of writing but anyway um yeah would it would does it all cohere i mean i know it's there yeah, the so I, I it's definitely there and I liked the references specifically to like the end the the rocket and like the space stuff because of the connection to the previous story with the with all of those characters in it. The the orgasm stuff I was like, whoa, like Tom Hanks, whoa, like mm-hmm. I didn't know that you used such language, sir. because uh, <laughs> yeah. it's so like I don't know, like PG, I guess, when it comes to that kind of stuff. But it also didn't fit with the rest of his metaphors. And I was like, what? <laughs> In the same paragraph, yeah, right? Yeah. So that was kind of strange. Um, but yeah, so so the the last bit, I was kind of like, eh, okay, you're mixing your metaphors. You're mixing your, your, your illusions here. So I, I, meh. But the, um, I think that 
the stuff about the rocket and everything else, I was like, okay, I, I can get on board with that. I like that. Yeah. No, I think so. I think so. Shall we dive into some of his humor? Yeah, let's I, do it. I also think the story is the clearest... This one and, frankly, the opening one with the same narrator, with the when he mm-hmm. goes on the dates and when he dates Anna, this is the clearest attempt he has at being humorous. Now, the only reason I'm going to harp on this so much, and don't want to spoil a future segment, but we'll do so, it's because a lot of the reviews talk about the humor. A lot of the quotes on the back cover and stuff mention humor. <laughs> a lot yeah. of the reviews of this book seem to mention humor. So I just thought this was some of his clearest attempts, so let's unpack some of them, see, see what we like. Yeah. So we think of them. This is during one of Steve Wong's games. I forget which perfect game. Steve opened the tenth with a strike. The crowd, uh, the crowd crowed. Sorry, hard to read. <laughs> and Anna screamed out, <laughs> "Anna, baby!" A hush fell. Steve strolled and swiped, and all ten pins fell again. His eleventh strike of the game, with one more needed for perfection. Redux. It would be a bad joke to say you could hear a pin drop, but you could. Dead silence met Steve's final roll. When perfect game, perfect game, perfect game honked on the computer scoreboard, you'd have thought it was New Year's Eve on the same night the Brooklyn Bridge opened. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, and Saddam Hussein was dragged from his spider hole. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that fucking list later. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> Wong Mania. Wong Mania was in full force, and we didn't get out of the place until exactly three in the morning. Three zero zero. Get it? Whoo, baby. Okay, <laughs> I can't contain myself. Oh man, this is so bad. It's like astoundingly bad. But let's try and unpack just why it's so bad. Um, okay, <laughs> let's do a couple of things that you and I hate. He explained two jokes to us. One was a setup that he explained as he set it up. The second was one that he said got it at the end. Thoughts yeah. on those? Did those were those funny to you? Nope. <laughs> yeah, it's like the most boring uncle or aunt you have at a holiday telling you stories and stuff, and you're just like, damn, this sucks. This, this is, like, not engaging. It has lame delivery. Like, what are we doing? And so, yeah. anyway... Uh, uh, hilarious, I guess. Let's unpack a couple other things. You want a little bit of Tom Hanks Americana here, Amanda? We get our classic list of the American, the all-time American achievements. Are you ready? Achievement <laughs> number ready. one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> brace yourself. <laughs> brace yourself. <laughs> because list item number one is... I'm sorry, I had to flip the page backwards. It is the Brooklyn Bridge opening. All right. Little New York love engineering marvel. The second one is Neil Armstrong walking on the moon... Which, you know, to all of our conspiracy theorist listeners out there, first of all, just get help. You really need help. And that you need to <laughs> please get help, uh, is all I'm saying. Um, QAnon's not real. Uh, anyway, so, the you know, let's presume that happened. Okay. I mean, an all-time achievement that's, like, staggering that we did that with basically no computers. And then the third one, Amanda, of course, the iconic scene of Saddam Hussein getting dragged out of his spider hole. We all know what a triumphant moment in American history, an unquestionably great towering achievement of American interventionism. My God, no issues with the war. I mean, what a beautiful conflict. What was that, 15 years? I mean, every second spent, well spent, every dollar well placed. What a triumph to get Saddam Hussein. Woo baby i mean that's out of his spider hole those are the three things there's no other things in america that's it right i mean that's basically it what did anything else even important happen in american history obviously not i mean those are yeah it covers everything i like now granted 
obviously I'm reading a lot into some of these moments and pinning this back on Hanks because so many of these kind of Americana moments, this like really strange version of America recurs in the collection. Maybe he is trying to just paint this narrator as a naive simpleton of the most casual, bland, banal history ever concocted, ever assembled into one person's mind. You know, a like cursory news headline based version of history or, or something. I don't know. Like maybe that is truly the narrator he wants to establish. I'm just pointing out that these kinds of things have cropped up enough to say, maybe this isn't a narrative construction and maybe it's just Hanks. <laughs> That's all I'm suggesting. Yeah. yeah. But if yeah. that list doesn't make you laugh, um, not at or not with, but at, at least we've got Wong mania, which... <laughs> you just love to add mania to anything, and it's hilarious. So, I mean, that's yeah, just... it's great. That, that's just an absolute fact. I mean, if you don't know that, Amanda, you don't know comedy. Just whatever <laughs> mania you want to. We got Hank's mania tonight. We're talking Hank's. It's Hank's mania in here, all right? It's Hank's mania. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah the... Mm, mm, I guess that depends on what mania means to you, because I, I feel getting like excited. we're not early... <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh just a god-awful paragraph that i will 100 percent be reading in the book review a hun- or the book rack a hundred percent that's the one i'm reading oh, no. there's absolutely no question in my mind uh just that's perfect yeah just a catastrophe anything about that paragraph you like or any i don't know anything else jumping out to you about this story i just want to point out that a pin, you can hear a pin drop is not actually a joke that's a cliche uh, yeah. so. The joke is that he used it and then tried to call it a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, just that. Yeah, I have I have been picking up on on multiple cliches that he uses, and it's just like every time I see it, I'm like, oh. Here's an odd trend okay. I've noticed, Amanda. Have you noticed that the two celebrity writers, celebrity writers, I should amend that statement, celebrities who have now written books we've covered that they're famous <laughs> for things that are not writing, <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. have you noticed that they seem to have a light editorial hand? Uh, you're telling me no editor at whoever the fuck published this book would have picked it, would have been like, huh, I wonder if this paragraph needs a bit of a work, work over. <laughs> I, wonder if this, I wonder if this is as lucid and interesting and funny as... You know, no one dropped him a line, huh? No one, okay, yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Just a strange coincidence that the two super famous people whose books we've covered have been littered with cliches and have been really bland in moments. Like, oh, okay, cool. Just And a, they're both performers, right? So you're just like, yeah. wow, okay. Uh, it's as if it's a different skill cultivated by different types of people. It's strange. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's almost yeah. as if it's a completely different, you know, way of thinking and being unto itself and odd. Well, whatever. <laughs> uh, what is what does history show us, right? I mean, the, all the great authors have been actors and comedians, right? That's a that's just a fact. Love those right. jokes Tony yep. Morrison fires off. Oh yeah, hilarious! Mm-hmm. Um, Loved her in that one movie. Yeah, yeah she's, she's great. great on the screen. <laughs> get a mic. Get a mic. You know what? Let's get a mic in George Saunders' hand. Get him in a stand-up set, and we'll get him out there. Um, <laughs> anyway, show my love for George Saunders today. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. That paragraph is garbage, and I just was like, "This is awful." And I, I, I was tired of reading it, and so I'm tired of talking about it now. <laughs> uh, here's I got a quick question then before we wrap this story up. I do want to get this yeah. out there. What in the hell does this story have to say about immigration? Can you give me something? Like, 
I it seems like something Hanks is really curious about, but I don't know where's a lucid investigation of this. M Dash, the side character, there's a scene in the story where he's trying his ass off to bowl um and, and just can't break a hundred, and then obviously Steve, who I don't think is an immigrant, but is clearly references Chinese. So I don't do we know his story exactly? Um, he is like, I think second generation. I, th- I think that it was like his parents were naturalized or his grandparents were naturalized or there something we go. like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect reading that fits in. But so we've got him, you know, doing this amazing thing. He doesn't love, but excelling next to M dash. He's fighting his ass off and doing, you know, bleeding out there on the lanes and can't, you know, seem to improve much. Uh, so there's maybe something to be read into that. But then the other thing that j- jumped out at me is later when M dash, gets a promotion or like goes to work at target instead of home depot. Cause he wants a different job. The narrator yeah. like heckles and ridicules him and is like, yeah, what a promotion, man. Like that's, I think it's even Steve Wong. Who's like, that's not a promotion. You're just trading one polo for another polo. And it's like, I mean, yeah. there is no American tradition, maybe more noble than demeaning that kind of labor and demeaning those kinds of laborers. Like, yep, that's yeah, that checks out. <laughs> He's not a billionaire yeah. with a glass rocket ship or whatever the fuck that guy was doing. So, sure, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's like, OK, that's a pretty clear reading. But I was just kind of like, well, then as an immigrant story, like, what's the M I guess here's what I'm trying to say. M dash comes up enough in this story to make me curious reading it in that way. That's all. I what, Any thoughts on how he showed up in this one? Yeah, it was weird because um, he had never been bowling before, and he right, had to right. use the the kitty bumpers, right? So yes, he still scored terribly, even with the kitty bumpers up. And um, I, I really, I don't know. It's so it's so strange. Like I, I had not thought of it in the in the context of the immigrant story, just because. Even though in the first story, in the three exhausting weeks, um, Tom Hanks made a point to point out that they all come from various degrees of immigration. Yeah, um, it's real American stuff. Exactly. Um, Yeah, the only real... We don't even get, like, M-Dash's story, so I feel like if, if he really wanted it to be a story about immigration he would have had m dash have more input mm-hmm. i think in yeah. the story itself yeah it was just such a the the comments the target comments were so pointed that i just thought like yeah. this is th- there's n- i mean granted at this point we shouldn't over or underestimate his humor and i think maybe he just thought that was a funny joke about shitty retail jobs or however he would phrase it. it was like okay but i guess it was just so pointed that i just thought this can't be an accident like this is there's right. some kind of commentary in here right <laughs> that was my yeah anyway that was my that was my i don't know simplistic quick read on it but uh, i was just curious if you had any other thoughts on that one yeah no not, Interesting. not yet <laughs> okay yeah we'll see we'll see um any other thoughts on this story in general before we move to final segments uh, nope, I'm good. I also reread Alan Bean Plus Four because, Amanda, are why? you are you ready? Oh, no, I'm, I can't wait to tell you why. Amanda, I cannot wait for this. Oh, my God. I'm about to I'm about to spoil my next segment, but I don't care. Do you know where I reread it? I read it today where? when I was at work. I read it online is what I'll say. Do you know where that story was published? No. Amanda, we've been it was betrayed. It before? 
Oh, it was published before. We have been betrayed, Amanda, in our by our most venerable, reliable institution on this podcast for criticism. <laughs> it was published in the New Yorker. <laughs> what? Alone too. That story with no context without the other two you know complimentary stories yes the new yorkers they even produced an original piece of art to go along with it like what? straight up yeah i saw it i about had a heart attack and i reread the whole <laughs> thing and thought this is just as terrible and incoherent as before i truly don't see any merit in it even with the new yorkers nice font and on their website i like reread it there and i was like this is so bad like staggeringly bad and yeah just mind-blowing yeah anyway strange <laughs> um i'll let me just jump ahead then we're doing critical assistance we end all of our book club part twos with some outside criticism from another author you know could be a video could be an article we usually pull articles as i just alluded to we prefer new yorker's a good one and, um another kind of literary minded <laughs> yeah i know man betrayed <laughs> you know they, it's a weekly publication they gotta publish a lot like they gotta fit they got to fit pages. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to hate on it too much. But I, I saw that and I was just like, wow, that's embarrassing. Um, anyway, I'll do mine first then. I pulled from the man himself. Time Magazine did an interview with Hanks when this book came out. And so it's just titled How Tom Hanks the Movie Star Became Tom Hanks the Writer. And it's just a brief interview. And this has some quotes from him and some summaries. So let's talk about just a few of them briefly. Hanks said the American writer and filmmaker with whom he worked on the 1993 romantic comedy Sleepless in Seattle helped inspire him to write. Nora and Nora Ephron. Nora always just said, well, you wrote that. And I said, I didn't write that. It was just me complaining in a rehearsal. And she said, no, no, that's what it is. That's what writing is. He told the pack crowd he's doing like a book talk. She was always giving me these writing props and bona fides. Everything we worked on together, we approached from a writing perspective. Years ago, Hanks sent Ephron a copy of an article he had written for the New York Times. I sent it to Nora and she kept coming back to me with suggestions. He said the biggest one was voice, voice, voice. So, Amanda, how did he do? He's really concerned with narrative and authorial voice. Thoughts? Uh, is he? Uh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> tell you what, this also feels like it's, I mean, I kept dancing around earlier. Why not just name it? The Trevor Noah book that I did not like at all. This and This and that both feel like it's as if they forgot the words have to do the talking and not them speaking and like articulating yeah. and using their face because both are just so incredibly flat. It's like staggering to think that that was what he if that's the thing he was going for most or if that's his kind of guiding star as a writer is to have a unique voice like, holy shit, man, I have so many books that would blow your mind, like how far yeah. a voice can be pushed <laughs> and to what extent a person can adopt a voice, you know, quote unquote, like this is yeah. incredibly flat stuff. Yes. And I'm assuming that what he had given her was... Um, is the no he said an article not a yeah, story yeah I think he wrote some nonfiction so, maybe or uh, non yeah. nonfiction like some kind of essay or something but still it's like oh my gosh I if if he has been told from from the beginning of his writing his attempts at writing that he needs to develop his voice and this is what he ends up with I'm just like bleak 
what did he start with? Blake. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. Let's move to the next quote from this one. Um, Hank said he wrote a short story. Hank said he, he did. <laughs> it doesn't sorry. Hanks wrote a short story <laughs> called Alan Bean Plus Four, which was published in the New Yorker in 2014. In preparation for writing it, he read, quote, two volumes of the best writing from the New Yorker. I read everything but the poetry. Forgive me. Amanda, this is our Hanks Rosetta Stone. Because this motherfucker... It, Oh, I can't believe I'm going to go on the same rant again right now as someone who doesn't even read poetry that often. Like, two things a year of poetry, man. The best writing is just poetry that people force into prose because it actually has interest in words and writing. Like, this dude needs to read poetry then so badly. He needs to go yeah. redo that assignment he gave himself and literally read nothing but the poetry then. Like, uh, when I saw yeah. that quote, I was like, man... That clicks everything into place because this is the most weightless, non-poetic writing I think I have ever seen. <laughs> like, yeah, th- we found it. This is what. This is it. <laughs> now we know. We didn't even have yes. to read this whole book. We could have just read that quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> God. In preparation for writing, I read everything except poetry, which has the most voice and style, which he said that he needed work on. Powerful. (laughs) I also do think, now granted, uh, we, for literary criticism, I I really do think I hold them in pretty high esteem. Also, the New York Review of Books, same with the Paris Review of Books. Paris Review of Books is maybe my favorite for like a one-off article I'll see and it'll like blow my mind. So for like active literary criticism that isn't in an academic journal, those are my two go-tos. They're accessible, they're both easy to find, and they both have great stuff. But... I don't know translating that into a voice for fiction it just doesn't it just doesn't work all the it just doesn't work all the time <laughs> like if you're yeah. a great analysis if you not if you are if you do great analysis of, of art and you do great criticism like that doesn't mean you can turn around and write inventive creative fiction I think it takes a slightly different brain so I, I get the impetus also the thing that that quote unlocks for me is like his writing does have kind of a weird detached almost stylistic formality to it that did now that i see that and know that that was his kind of i don't know project i was like oh okay he does have kind of a new yorkerishness about him but also when it's fiction and not nonfiction, it's just so bland like i guess if some of these had the same kind of jokes the same sarcasm the same humor but he was writing a review of a movie he didn't like or something like okay Mm -hmm. it might be kind of interesting but as fiction like man you're standing in a tradition that has tried so much so much (laughs) and you're trying nothing (laughs) it's just like you cannot say things like this that's just like that kills me man i like but at least we solved it. <laughs> That's why I pulled this. I, when I read that, I was like, we have to talk about this. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. No. Any Anything you'd, you'd like to prescribe to his syllabus? Oh, oh my gosh. Just uh, read anything. Like, I feel like with the way that he writes, as far as I've seen so far... If he were to write some kind of criticism about a film or a, a play or something like that, I think that I would actually, you know, enjoy that because he yeah. he would be able to make his points clear. He's obviously good at outlining, right? I mean, that's what these yeah, short stories are. I do. I, there's a, <laughs> as soon as I saw this New Yorker piece too, I was like, ah, there is a clarity in his stuff. It it did mm-hmm. it did come across as very kind of smooth and clear. It's very frictionless which in fiction to me is actually an insult sometimes. Right. <laughs> but it, it right. does have a kind of a smooth, 
I think, assumed cleverness about it. Now, granted, we just read and analyzed some of the humor, so I don't think that was working all the time. But <laughs> yeah, it does have kind of that New Yorkery. It's sophisticated, but not too overbearing quality. I don't know. Yeah. I won't forgive you, Tom yeah. Hanks, because I just read your 400-page book, and it needed about 200% more poetry in it, is what I will say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Maybe 2,000%. All right, final quote. I'll be brief on this one. Hanks said, the one book he wishes he had written, had I had the talent to do so, is called A World Lit Only by Fire by William Manchester. It is fascinating. You learn so much, not just about the Dark Ages, but all the stuff that puts into purely human terms. It has no nostalgia for the era, but it is literally about people's day-to-day existence. I just wanted to pull that quote and then tack it to the previous one to say, then just just go write narrative nonfiction. It seems like he's poised for it. Like, I really think that's his interest. Like, yeah, man, go do what every white American American man does, probably myself included, in 20 to 50 years, 20 to 30 years. Just go write something about World War II then. Fuck it. Like, just call it and just do the thing that everyone's going to do and and just go dive in and, okay, then that's your thing. <laughs> You'll write, like, right. a touching and humanistic look at blah, blah, blah. That's what Malcolm Gladwell just did. Like, just go do it then. Although he's Canadian and half black, but the joke still stands. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like, go do that thing that people get curious about and then go do it. Like, I just... I don't know. I, it just seems like he wants to write in the voice of of like kind of intriguing narrative nonfiction. It seems like what he admires. Right. It's what I find interesting too about this quote is like he admires that book because it has no nostalgia for the era. It's like okay, well, you did the opposite. <laughs> That's true. You're gonna like sit there and say not to have nostalgia. Good lord, uh, brutal man. The 1950s and 30s are calling Tom. They're calling. And then when was the space race? Technically the 60s, I think. Right, early. So anyway, yeah, they're calling, yeah. brother. They're calling. All right, let's move on to your critical assistance. Um, I got mine from NPR um, and it's called Tom Hanks lays out a kinder gentler world in uncommon type and this was written by Heller McAlvin Um, it should come as no surprise that empathy drives uh, Hanks' collection of fiction while all of the 17 stories in uncommon type feature a different antique manual typewriter Hanks is an avid collector. They are linked by something greater than typewriter ribbons, a decidedly benign, humane view of people and their foibles. In a world where the news is unrelentingly bleak and much fiction tends towards the dystopic, wow, dystopic, post-apocalyptic, dark or edgy, this is a gentler, sweeter kind of storytelling than we've come to expect. Some of the stories are whimsical, some funny, some downright sentimental. Uh, so I, I was like, "Where's the uh, whimsy?" She, yeah, that's what I was like. Where's the whimsy? Where's the the hilarity? Um, sentimental, yes, definitely. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was like, ah, I think this person is uh, being overly kind <laughs> in the description. I think the whimsy one is not. It, that's just incorrect. I don't. The, you know what? The Alan Bean plus four is whimsical because it makes no sense, and I don't even know. It's like goofy whimsical, I guess. Like I don't even. I we do, we guess. weren't even sure if it was literally true or what the what was happening. Almost, it's like a it's like a dream adventure or something. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So yeah, I, I a compliment, no I guess. I still... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Um, 
but yeah, a benign, humane view of people and their foibles. I was like, okay, yeah, that's pretty, pretty correct there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, this person goes on to say, actually, a lot of these stories feel like TV shows with stock casting. I was like, yep. <laughs> yeah, stock casting. Got it. Yep. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's pretty spot on. Um, unfortunately, the four issues of Our Town Today with Hank Fissett, which was your favorite, Travis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please. <laughs> please. <laughs> no more. Miss. misfire repeatedly the running gag of this deliberately hokey tri-cities daily news herald newspaper column is that everything was better in the old days and still is in the tri-cities a typical target the ridiculous gobbledygook of unedited iphone pros classic i was like yes i'm yeah i agree that those were not great but again those those ones did highlight uh hanks's uh, underlying nostalgia for simpler times. <laughs> yeah, it. I don't even know how to phrase it. Yes, it's it's it is well put. I think gobbledygook is such a. It, it does feel like a Hanksian word almost. It's almost like the author took a Hanksian turn of phrase there for how he would describe some of the modern frustrations or frustrations with modernity. I should say. So yeah, I think that is. Yeah, well said. I agreed with a lot of the quotes you pulled from this one. I kind of nodded along. Yeah, me too. Um, Typewriters underscore the collection's recurrent theme, summed up in the title of an archetypal Hank story. The past is important to us. Set in 2027, this wistful love story is about a rich but unfulfilled man who, despite the risks, repeatedly travels back in time to the 1939 New York World's Fair, drawn by an enchanting young woman in a green dress. It exemplifies Hank's predilection for playful sci-fi, old and new technology, and the cornball sensibility of mid-century television. Ah, cornball. That's it. That's it. (laughs) It's New Yorker-esque. I guess I should say NPR-esque now. We can switch, you know, our allegiance. It's so cornball. Mm -hmm, The whole mm -hmm. thing is just cornball. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, Here it says, like, predilection for playful sci-fi i was like playful is not a word that i would use with these writings <laughs> well that story it, is playful just in so far as it's very loose with the rules it like clearly is not it doesn't care about science which i frankly is like the sci-fi i like <laughs> so i'm like yeah i'm down like i didn't i remember earlier in the pod we got hooked on a i got hooked on a little tangent about how that makes no sense eh, it doesn't matter i don't care <laughs> it's like okay the time travel is not explained well it's fine it's not egregious it's whatever he's told he'll die if he stays that's all all we need to know it's okay yeah so which he does <laughs> right so yeah yeah it's like it's okay but yeah playful sci is was there any other sci-fi am i forgetting one i mean there was alan bean plus four <laughs> story it, it beleaguers categorization like there's no i don't even know <laughs> we still can't decide if it was literal if it was a satire of iphone apps like i i was even more confused today reading it even more confused like the second time I read that story, I was like, this is not even, I don't know what this wants me to unpack, but it d- makes no sense. And I don't even think it deserves it. Like, what are these random asides? The humor's so awful. Cornball. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> what are your other thoughts on this one? Uh, the final one is, um, is this great literature? No, it's too generic and mawkish. 
But Uncommon Type offers heartfelt charm along with nostalgia for sweeter, simpler times, even if they never really were quite so sweet or simple. Um, and so I, I was like, you're correct. This is not great literature. <laughs> and it is too generic, 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I just agreed with a lot of what this person had to say, which is funny because, like, on the cover, NPR says, wonderful, offers heartfelt war- charm. So, obviously, somebody else from NPR liked it, but... Oh, were those <laughs> quotes not picked from her review? The quotes that I read were, but the one from the cover of the book... Hmm. Uh, might have been from, like, an actual... Not. Yeah, it might not have been published. It might have been an actual interview, like, audio. Interesting. I mean, quotes get cherry picked. It's fine. I'm sure I've said a compliment here. You can take Tom. Thanks. You don't need anything from me, but <laughs> you can have it. All right, we're running long, and I know it's because of my digressions. Any other thoughts from that interview, or any of the outside criticism we pulled? Nope, I'm good. Including, uh, I just want to make it clear: the criticism I pulled was of himself from himself. I just don't think he's aware. So <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe he will become aware. Um, let's move then to our final segment for book clubs, Amanda. It is the lightly literary Hall of Fame. We're each going to pick an element of the book to induct into the Hall of Fame and just kind of praise and something that we can remember about the book and take forward. Not even close. The hardest one for me. The, we've only done this segment what three or four times, but. Yeah, this is not even close. The hardest one we've had to do for like I'm already kind of gonna fake it to get something in, but I do have something. Do you want to start us off though? Sure. Um, I just followed in his footsteps and did something pretty generic. I said um, he would be inducted for the most attempts at being experimental in format in one collection. Sure, we've encountered no question. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he tries lots of different formats, not always successfully. Yep, but he does try. I do admire <laughs> it too. I, I almost—if you hadn't have done that, I'm not saying I would have thought of it on my own. But when I read yours, I thought I'll probably just say I agree with yours. Let's end this. <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> that would be lazy. I'm not going to be that lazy about it. Um, no, it's a great entry though, and it's a good. And we really haven't encountered something so daring, uh, moment to moment, or kind of story to story, chapter to chapter. So I completely agree. My entry is going to be simpler and way more narrow because I, I really did think for a long time, probably too long, maybe maybe 20 minutes on and off, just trying to think of a moment when I felt joy, bliss, interest while reading this. And there were moments, you know, I'm not saying it's it was very smooth reading as we've established. right? It's very kind of, you know, as I say, effortless, but it's very smooth. The one thing that I came back to, though, I do think the best story is the father-son beach one. Didn't even pull the name for it. That's okay. (laughs) Um, Welcome to Mars. There you go. Welcome to Mars, where they go on their trip and he learns of his father's infidelity and and their, you know, disconnection and whatever. I just think I'm going to induct, so I'm going to induct not the story, but their relationship, just because I think it, it has some of his quieter moments. I do think the conclusion leaves at least a touch of room for some interpretation and some like work for the the literature to do and maybe not for the narrator to just do explicitly. I, I thought the ending was kind of understated and there's a clear juxtaposition of the injury and his emotional hurt and all that. Like I don't think that's that complex, but I thought it was at least more subtle and I appreciated that. So I'm going to induct that relationship into the Hall of Fame because I do think that was probably the story that engaged my brain just the most overall. 
I think that, uh, yeah, character work-wise, that was the best one. I think descriptive-wise, yeah. the last one, Steve Wong, um, is perfect, is is the most descriptive. So yeah. those are the two that stand out in my mind, for sure. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, there is... Well, anyway, let's let's wrap up there. <laughs> I was going to say more. <laughs> I think there is a funny tendency, though, for us to... We tend to go on longer for the things we critique har- more harshly. I don't know if that's because yeah. we're apologetic <laughs> about it or something. Maybe I don't hear that in my own voice as often, or I don't notice myself apologizing, backtracking, but I just thought it was funny, and I mentioned that before we move on, because it's. I just noticed it again. We've gone longer for this one where it's like, for something we love, like something wicked this way comes, we almost have... yeah less to say which is funny i don't know well we both agree on so many things about it and there's just i mean you can only praise something so much before you sound like you're just like sucking up right yeah yeah no totally (laughs) excellent um okay any final thoughts on uncommon type by tom hanks nope thanks thanks mr hanks we appreciate the fodder (laughs) for discussion If you didn't enjoy that conversation, then I, thanks for listening all the way through. My gosh, we appreciate it. <laughs> and if you did, we do have other books coming. Yeah, appreciate the rambles. Uh, we do have other books coming up. We've choose three ahead every time. So, Amanda, run us through our next choices in order. Next is Jazz by Toni Morrison. Then after that, we have World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. And that's by Amy Nizukatil. Sorry. You can I spell it. Did. It's okay. I mean, yeah, I'll never criticize a person for mispronouncing a name. I can't pronounce, you know, any. Um, I, I had it last time, and I forgot to write down my, okay. my notes about the pronunciation. It's N-E-Z-H-U-K-U-M-A-T-A-T-H-I-L. Yep. Nizukumatatil, I think. Okay. And finally, good. Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion. Yeah, we got uh, for International Women's Day, we got three women coming up, so pat on the back for us. <laughs> that was sarcastic, yeah, by the way. that wasn't even planned. Just... <laughs> I know, I know. That was sarcastic, too. <laughs> also, this will release so much, like, months after, so that barely worked. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It was mostly mostly a joke, but it's a weird coincidence, too. Way to go, us. Pat on the back. Pat on the back. All right. Uh, and no final thoughts on the Hanks from tonight? No. <laughs> Indeed, no. We've said our piece. <laughs> As always, listeners, we thank you for listening to the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook under that title or that handle. It's just one word, so at the Lightly Literary Podcast. As always, if you could leave a recommendation a five-star review on wherever you found us we're on most major platforms so we appreciate it and most critically until next time we'll see you between the pages 